Postcard from Dulcie to Stephanie, Christmas Eve, 1977. Dear Stephanie, I received your letter this morning and I was so glad when you said you were recovering as well. I do hope that your recovery will be 100%. I know that this must have been a great psychological strain on you, but as you yourself admitted, your husband and children need you. These, Stephanie, are the most encouraging words you have ever written. Never mind what the wound looks like now. It will heal, and as it heals, I hope that you recover fully. You are still very young. Love to you, Wren, and the children. Sleep well. Love, Dulcie. My name is is Neo Rakajani, and this is episode 6 of the podcast series They Killed Dalsi. You need to hear the first five before this one. I must also remind you that the podcast deals with violent and sometimes graphic content. This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence that may be triggering for some. Okay? Let's get started. In episode 3, when Dulcie and her comrades were arrested in the 1960s, Betty van der Hayden said something important. They didn't take us seriously, so they didn't hide anything. Before Dulcie's murder, she warned the ANC leadership and French government that she felt threatened. Again, her warnings were brushed aside. In this episode, we asked the question. Could Dulcie's fate have been different had she been a man? But before that, Rasmus Bids has some unfinished business in Brussels. This episode is Woman in Exile. In the last episode, we saw how Dulcie was investigating the extensive network of arms-stealing and money laundering run from the South African Embassy in Paris. We established that Dulcie was investigating this, and we know how it ended for her. What we haven't looked at yet was how it ended for the people on the other side, the people Dulcie was trying to expose. In this episode, we'll look at one example, a man named Andre Vlerik. This was the man journalist Ludwig Ferdoin explained was a key figure in the relationship between the apartheid government and the banks KB Lox and Kreditbank. Vlerik was also a well-known academic and politician, and we'll dig into his legacy later. But we're going to start in Ludwig Ferdoin's childhood in Belgium. I'm, I'm uh, nearly 60 years old, but if we were kids, it was fun to sing a hurra voor die boer, hurra, beklem die bert, things like that. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was nice. For this story, two things about Ludwig's memories of singing hurra voor die boer are important. The first thing is that when Ludwig grew up in the Flemish region of Belgium, there was a strong sense of solidarity with the Afrikaners and the apartheid project in South Africa. You had a lot of parallels between the Flemish region in Belgium and the Afrikaners in South Africa. They had, first of all, the same language, and they both saw themselves as minorities. The Flemish in Belgium saw themselves as oppressed by the French-speaking elites in the country. 
This, they felt, was a similar situation to how the Afrikaners in South Africa were oppressed by the English-speaking elites. This idea persisted, even if it became less accurate. So you had this ideological parallels and language and minority feeling, uh, but also in power. I mean, the Afrikaners had a lot of money and they controlled mines and they had money flowing in and out. The other important thing about the story Ludwig was told about apartheid was that it was no coincidence. There were powerful interests shaping the messaging about South Africa. We weren't told about black people and, and, and uh, inequalities. and No, 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 everything was, it was, it was uh, the land of milk and honey. Uh, that was what was told to us by the whole network of, of Flemish Catholic schools and uh, institutions which were linked to this uh, network. The network Ludwig mentions originates amongst the wealthy elites of Flanders. And this is where André Vlerik, the chairman of Kreditbank, comes in. Vlerik founded what today remains the most prestigious business school in the country, and he served in various posts in local and national government, for example, as Minister of Finance. And he wasn't just an important factor in facilitating the money laundering for the arms money machine. He was personally connected to the highest levels of the apartheid government. He publicly defended apartheid, and documents from his own archive shows that he was part of an international elite of apartheid supporters. One of those documents is the personal invitation to the inauguration of state president Nico Dietrichs in April 1975. After the official program in Cape Town, Blerick was invited to an exclusive event at Anton Rupert's wine farm in Stellenbosch. Rupert, a tobacco entrepreneur and head of one of the richest families in South Africa, provided the setting for what appears like a networking event for top apartheid politicians and European bankers and industrialists. On this and other trips to South Africa, Blerick got the VIP treatment. And he showed his gratitude in many ways. Which ended up for concerning Vlerik and the creation of what was called Protea. Protea, which was a, a lobby group of Flemish industrials, uh, rich people, who poured money into the better understanding of South Africans in Europe, in Belgium, Flanders and Holland. Protea, the lobby group Ludwig mentions, was founded in 1977 and André Vlerik was heading it for 13 years. During that time, the organization remained a staunch supporter of apartheid. This could be seen, for example, in the magazine Sudafrica. In 1987, the magazine ran an article about the dubious character Desmond Tutu. The article was illustrated with a cartoon of the archbishop opening a cross-shaped box with a dagger inside. This was three years after Tutu received the Nobel Peace Prize. What the South African government and Andre Vlerik knew was that keeping apartheid going wasn't simply a matter of military force. It was also a matter of perception, PR and advertisement, in other words. South Africa has sunshine to spare in February and March, and you're welcome. South Africa has unforgettable sights to see, unlimited things to do, and no currency restrictions. Book your place in the sun with South African Airways. You're welcome. Andre Vlerik died in 1990, four years before apartheid ended. And in the following decade, Ludwig Verdoin began researching and writing critical articles about Kreditbank, KB Lux, and their various financial schemes. When I was writing about KB Lux some years ago, 
I had a spokesman from Credit Bank who came to me. He was still speaking to me at that time. That changed afterwards. And he said, well, Ludwig, uh, you know, you don't have to be worried so much about uh, the fact that Capilux is used for fiscal fraud. He said, we Flemish people, we are Catholics. If we sin, we go to the church and we confess and we can go on. In 1999, this cost him his job as editor for the newspaper De Morgan and a fine of 6,000 euros. It's only recently, with the open secrets revelations, that the incredible extent of the financial relationships between Kreditbank, KB Lux, and the apartheid regime has become public knowledge. If I think about that now, I say, well, yeah, you have been armed. you have been dealing with arms corps. Confess, <laughs> confess to your sins, and then you can go on. I mean, what you said that time doesn't apply now anymore. I mean, be logical, be consequent, and confess, but they don't. But according to Fred Doyne, the revelations hasn't made much of an impression in Belgium. No, there hasn't even been, by my knowledge, not even one question in Parliament. Not even from the opposition banks, not even from the left-wing opposition. To Ludwig Fred Doyne, the problem is bigger than Kreditbank and Arms Corps. It's a problem for all of Flemish and Belgium society. If you don't want to face your own history, even more, if you're continuing to make an untouchable ideological hoodoo <laughs> of a name of a person who died so already some long time ago. And you don't have the, the power to look into your own heart and to say, well, perhaps we made a fa- we made a mistake and we have to change things. I think we are perhaps three or four people who talk about this case in Belgium. So I don't have to tell you that I'm not very popular with those people. I mean, they see me as a, somebody who... Uh, puts dirt in their own uh, needs. Like a sort of a traitor to your own people? Uh, like a traitor, well, perhaps that's a bit, yeah, well, why not? I mean, you know, there was a song from uh, Charles Aznavour who said in French, uh, tout le monde qui dit la vérité, il doit être exécuté. And that's everybody who says the truth, he has to be uh, taken out. Since I am in Belgium, I decide to test this out. Is it really true that André Vlerik's reputation remains unblemished? So I go to one of the institutions that carries Vlerik's name, the Vlerik School of Business. It was founded by Andre Vlerik, who on the school website is described as a renowned academic, entrepreneur and politician. They don't include his affinity for racial segregation. And I can't ask them why, because when I phone and ask for an interview, they decline. In an email, the school informs me that our management will not be giving interviews with regards to this specific topic. I'm sure that you can understand that the current management of Vlerik Business School is unable to talk about the actions or opinions of the late Andre Vlerik, which date back 40 years. His personal beliefs and other mandates are in no way related to the values and vision of Vlerik Business School. The thing is, I actually can't understand that. The Vlerik legacy is a headline on their website. Surely they can't be serious about there being no relation at all. I'm genuinely curious to find out and also to see if the students at the school know anything about the man whose name is going to be on their diplomas. So I go to the main campus in the Flemish city of Ghent to find out. It's the beginning of the academic year. Students are crowding the cobbled streets where at one point I count four chocolate shops across the streets from one another. But the students I speak to either don't know what I'm talking about or don't want to be interviewed, or both. I don't know, is that news to you, all of this? Uh, that is new. <laughs> I didn't know that, so... And what do you think about it? 
uh, <laughs> what do I think about it? <laughs> I'm glad I know now. I can tell you a lot of good things about the mm-hmm. school, but I cannot comment about yeah, yeah. Uh, this topic. At the main reception desk, I try my luck again to see if I can speak to somebody from management. My story is about how Andre Vlerik was a big um, supporter of apartheid in South Africa and was uh, and was instrumental in like um, enabling the government to buy weapons illegally. Yeah. Ah, you know? That's negative publicity. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm completely yeah. honest about it. And that's why they don't want to talk to me, of course. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense. Uh, I just can't. Eventually, I actually meet a management representative. He doesn't want to be recorded, but we speak for the better part of an hour about Vlerik, about apartheid, about how much rebranding a business school costs, and whether a cycling team named after Lance Armstrong would be associated with doping. When I leave, I think about the journalist Ludwig Ferdoin's words. Uh, we all put our heads in the sand and everybody lives on happily ever after. But what does all this have to do with Dorsey September? Here's what I think. A powerful man like Vlerik remains celebrated and his memory has been sanitized. No one at the Vlerik Business School of course believes in racial segregation anymore. But their success, at least in part, rests on the alliance between powerful racist elites that never have had to reckon with the past in any meaningful way. Meanwhile, there's no Dolce September school of political science or a just, non-racist, non-sexist society in South Africa. It's hard not to see that the lesson here is this. Privilege extends even beyond the grave, and so does oppression. As I leave the campus, the festivities of the new academic year are still going on. It's noisy, but I still try to ask one more student about Vlerik. Do you know Do you know the name Andre Vlerik? Uh, who? Andre Vlerik? Uh, yeah, it sounds familiar, yeah. I think the business school here is named after him. Ah. Have you ever heard about apartheid in South Africa? Over the what? Apartheid in South Africa? Apartheid in South Africa? Yeah. No. You never heard about that? Never heard about it. Okay. All right, well, thank you. No problem, you're welcome. Have a, have a festive start to the school year. Thank you. You do. All right. It's also a little bit noisy, but I suppose they are having a festive start to the year, sponsored by KBC. Credit bank. Sometimes these moments are just too ironic, eh? There's no doubt that Andre Flerig was on the wrong side of history. And yet, his reputation hasn't suffered in the slightest. Meanwhile, Dalsi remains a marginal character in the history of the struggle. Starting with Dalsi's own notes, we're going to look at how gender-based discrimination affected the lives of Dalsi September and freedom fighters like her. This is Nina Kellehan. <laughs> Thank you.
Like the apartheid government, the freedom fighters knew that the struggle over the future of South Africa was also fought in the area of public perception. And in the spring of 1986, the ANC office in Paris had the opportunity to make a big difference. It had been 10 years since the Soweto uprising and ANC president Oliver Tambo was coming to Paris. Big ideas were on the table, amongst them a concert where some of the most popular artists of France would perform to support the struggle. But it didn't go as planned. Here is the introduction to a report Dulcie wrote afterwards. The organization of the visit was disastrous, to say the least. Although I had two comrades to assist me, Comrade Johnny, who had come here two weeks before the conference, and Comrade Tami, who came from Brussels, to assist with the organization of the aborted concert. Together, the three of us managed to foul up everything. We'll get to what exactly went wrong later, but even the beginning of the report tells us something about Dulcie that people who knew her always bring up. Dulcie was quite fearless. And that's the thing about Dulcie. When you're saying, why did she fear? There's not much that Dulcie feared. This is Ilva McKay Langa, Dulcie's comrade, whom we met in the previous episode. We still speak in the busy ANC office in Port Elizabeth. She didn't give up on issues. She didn't stand down. You know, no matter how loud and strident someone else may have tried to be, but she didn't step back. Sometimes you'd start getting a bit tired, you know, and you'd feel, oh, Lord. If you've listened to the first five episodes of the series, you will know that Dulcie did not play a supporting role to the men who fought for freedom. She was on the centre stage. And in spite of what many historical accounts would suggest, she was far from the only woman there. Before returning to Dulcie's report from Paris, we're going to look deeper into the specific challenges women like Dulcie might have faced in the struggle. And it begins with recognizing the roles women have played. Women were, were involved in, in making posters, getting involved in rallies, um, taking on the police protests at universities, protests throughout the streets, organizing those protests. This is writer and researcher Heather Robertson, and besides her own activism, she has written about women in the struggle. Women were writers, I mean, like me. They're women were writers. They wrote pamphlets. Women were journalists. They, you know, they were amazing lecturers. And yes, women did also bear arms. Women were in the forefront. They were absolutely in the forefront. And, then, and women were, were, were jailed and tortured and beaten up terribly. Heather Robertson's point is clear. In the struggle, women's roles were as diverse as they were. But they all had at least one thing in common. They all experienced gender-based discrimination in one form or another. I think as a woman, you are placed under a huge amount of pressure. I think we have to prove ourselves beyond all recognition. This is Shirley Gunn. She is the director of the Human Rights Media Centre and a veteran of the armed struggle. I've begun to realise how painful that is, actually, how we have to assert ourselves and prove ourselves because we're not equal. We're not, we're not seen as equal. We're not treated as equal. 
whereas I think we actually better. Shirley Gunn fought in the underground during apartheid. And if we were out to prove that Shirley is right when she argues women made better fighters than men, she isn't the worst example herself. As an underground operative in the Ashley Creel unit, she took part in many successful attacks on strategic targets. She was detained and jailed on several occasions, spending months in solitary confinement. While Shirley operated inside South Africa, she was trained abroad, both in Cuba and in the MK camps in Angola, where being a woman could be an isolating experience. We, we, we women were in the minority in MK, and uh, we underwent the same training that anyone else did. There was no separation of what we could or couldn't do. There were about 80 people in the camp, and there were about, at most, four women in the camp That at any one moment. Women were often given roles that were not so in the front line, and there were more secretaries, admin, logistics, etc. Um, but then women in exile started to meet and change the agenda, uh, radicalized by the politics of the day in South Africa and coming out and feeding that into the exiled community and raising awareness and challenging the men in all fronts. And um, where does, how does change come about? It comes from the people who were oppressed rising up. And I'm, I'm glad to say women didn't lie down and accept this bum deal, this second-class status in our liberation struggle. Sometimes, as Shirley remembers, when women were doing better than men, they found ways to explain away the obvious. I recall coming back from the, from the range, shooting range, and um, I, was, I was put to task with a lot of different kind of firearms. My instruction was one-on-one -on -one so that I wouldn't get too much exposure in this camp. And then when I came back, you know, the comrades would say, oh, how did it go? And I said, oh, room for improvement. And I would see the instructor kind of looking at me and, and you know, with his eyebrow up, raised. Um, because I got eight, eight out of ten, nine out of ten, ten out of ten, and I thought, oh, well, I can, I can do better. I must do better. And I remember some comrade commenting, Oh, it's because she can thread a needle. Challenging gender stereotypes in the liberation movements did not start with Shirley Gunn's generation. Dulcie September, Betty van der Hayden and many other early women freedom fighters in South Africa were breaking stereotypes decades before any women were trained in the MK camps. This is Heather Robertson again. There was a lot of sexism and gender discrimination um, and it's, this is something that Dulcie September very clearly fought against, both outside and within the ANC. Her generation, I think, is quite inspiring for those of us who follow. Dulcie was a feminist icon for the women who followed her. But it is a mistake to reduce her to a symbol. For the people she knew closely, she was more than that. After meeting in London, Ilva McKay Langer and Dulcie both relocated to Lusaka in Zambia, where Dulcie had been called to work full-time for the ANC. 
She was rising in the ranks and, amongst other tasks, represented the ANC on a number of international conferences on equality and the rights of women and children. During that time, once again, you know, we were very, very close. I was very close to uh, Dalsi. Life in Lusaka was different than it had been in London. There were security risks, and even close friends sometimes didn't know about large parts of each other's lives. The slight difference with Zambia is that there were, they called them underground houses. Some people, I'm guessing it's because of the nature of the work, you know, stayed in places which you wouldn't necessarily know. I wouldn't know where Dalsi stayed. Uh, it's what they call on a need-to-know basis. But other parts of life also continued like it always does. Ilva had children of her own, and Dalsi again stepped in, filling the gaps of families and communities at home. In fact, my daughter, my uh, eldest daughter, Nsiki, you know, was, she was a baby then, and Dalsi used to come there virtually every day and, you know, be grandmothering away. You know, do this when the child cries, you know, don't keep picking her up because I'll just be jumping up and down. And Dalsi will say, no, 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 you can't, you know, jump up and keep picking up the child. You have to feed her. She's clean. She's warm. She has to sleep now. Like Dalsi and Ilva, many exiled freedom fighters became like family for each other. Bonds of loyalty were forged that still remain decades later. But some women also endured horrible assaults. Some of them stood up at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The following is a witness statement about sexual violence. It is very disturbing. And if you don't want to hear it, you should skip the next two minutes. This is Heather Robertson reading from her text, Flowers of the Revolution. During the TRC, Tenjium Tinso described how Despite her having a high position in MK, one of her male comrades said to her, you know, it's going to get to the point that I am going to rape you and it's going to be very easy to rape you and I know there's no way that you're going to stand in front of all of these people and say I raped you. She said to the TRC that sexual violence was used by those in power to destroy the identity of women who have rejected traditional roles. Another MK woman, Lita Nombanga Mazibuko, reported to the TRC uh, after she she had assisted uh, after one of her comrades she had assisted to cross the border had been killed she was regarded as an enemy and a spy uh, she was kidnapped tortured and interrogated they hit and kicked her forced her to stay in holds for long periods and she's saying she was tortured because she rejected a sexual relationship with one of the torturers they said I should have some men in my life who could sort out my problems she said to the TRC. Um, she acknowledged within the ANC there's no such rule that women should be violated in this manner. Despite this, she was raped by at least three comrades, one of whom cut through her genitals, tied her hands, her legs, they were apart, also tied her neck, and would pour detol over her genitals. While the official position of the ANC was non-sexist, there's no doubt that misogyny played out even at the highest levels of the organization. General Andrew Masondo reacted to these allegations of rape and sexual exploitation in his response to the TRC. And if you hear it, okay, I think maybe the people hear it for themselves, I'll, I'll remind them. He said, 
In Angola, there are at one time 22 women in a group of more than 1,000 people. There was an allegation that commanders were misusing women. The law of supply and demand must have created some problems. While Dulcie's world in Paris was far from the camps in Tanzania and Angola, it was also far from the non-racist, non-sexist future she was fighting for. But Dulcie being Dulcie didn't shy away from confronting these issues even within the ANC. And this brings us back to the report she wrote about Oliver Tambo's visit to Paris. Over three typewritten pages, Dulcie describes a series of mishaps and disappointments, culminating when the charity concert they had planned had to be cancelled when the audience had already arrived. The report is precise and specific, and there is no question Dulcie is angry. Angry at the laziness and incompetence of her comrades. And then there is the matter of comrade Tami, who had come to assist planning the event. About him, Dulcie writes, This office had Tami here since after the Brussels conference. A lot of money went into his keep, indiscriminate private use of the telephone and postage, not to mention the language that was used when he was having altercations with a woman. Besides this, he offended a person who gives almost all her spare time to assist the ANC voluntarily. The obscene remarks have resulted in her not wanting to come to this office. The question that is being posed is... Is the ANC not used to working with women as equals? But coming back to Dulcie September, she was someone who actually saw this and she stood up for it. She was not afraid to actually call out this abuse and the sexism. I think she actually took no nonsense. We don't know what the response was to Dulcie's report. She was no longer a young woman easily dismissed as hysterical or not intellectual enough. Less than two years later, someone deemed her so important she had to be killed. It is difficult to dismiss the idea that her fate could have been different had she been a man. Dulcie's report to the ANC ends like this. I ask myself, where does one go to from here? And in the final analysis, is it I who shall have to try to undo what has been done? You have been listening to episode 6 of They Killed Dulcie. The next episode is Dangerous Goods. Well, it's, it is difficult not to be a bit uh, annoyed that you can be responsible for so many, many people's death and still being protected. They Kill Dulcie is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za.